Hello and welcome to Seeds and Ways, a podcast. I'm the Reverend Dr. Cheryl A. Lindsay, Minister for Worship and Theology for the United Church of Christ. Today I'm sharing my reflection, Life, based on Matthew 10, 24 through 39, which reads, A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, and even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it life. While in a seminary course on prayer, the professor directed us to pair up and pray for one another. He instructed us not to ask the person their prayer request. Rather, we were to seek the direction of the Spirit to guide our prayer. We did this in multiple rounds. As a result, in this fairly large seminary class, we prayed for those who we knew well and others we only had brief interactions with in class. In one round, I partnered with my commuting buddy. We talked on those weekly trips about our families, our ministries, our hopes, and our disappointments. She always had the sunniest disposition, and I knew her life was not perfect. She was in a good place as far as I knew. I was surprised then to find the Spirit telling me to pray for her peace and nothing else, not her children, nor her day job. She sought peace, so I prayed for peace. When I finished that rather brief prayer, she smiled and told me that was just what she needed. As a result of that, I often pray for peace for the people on my prayer list because it is often not apparent when that need goes unmet. So it always takes considerable pondering when I read Jesus say, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. This entire passage is cutting, like the sheep and the goats discourse that will come in Matthew 25, the words of Jesus, promise a level of accountability and consequence that may seem incompatible with the God of grace and mercy. In particular, this passage portrays Jesus as an intentionally divisive figure who insists that to follow him means to leave everything and everyone behind, especially those closest to you. Quote, Bold proclamation is risky. Matthew's community had martyrs in its memory and in its current consciousness. They could look back to the crucifixion of Jesus and before that, to the beheading of John the Baptist. 
The threat is ongoing. By Matthew's time, it was well known that Christians, including Simon Peter, who was so important to Matthean Christianity, had been crucified in Rome under Nero. End quote, Anna Case Winters. There are two audiences in this story. Both of them contain disciples. There are the original hearers, the first to be called to follow Jesus. They did cast down their nets, leave home and family, and join Jesus on his itinerant ministry. Jesus distanced themselves from their own immediate family in service of their teaching and healing work. There are also the audience found in the Matthean community who had to grapple with the persecution of their time, including the martyrdom of the apostles. In this passage, Jesus uses the term peace in a way that reflects a more contemporary and superficial perspective than found in the tradition of the prophets and the Hebrew scriptures. Peace, real peace, denotes a realization or demonstration of the kingdom of God. When peace is fully present, humanity and all creation are whole, well, and flourishing. Here, Jesus speaks of the absence of conflict, the poor and inadequate substitute for God's shalom. But that was probably just what the Matthean audience longed to achieve when under assault, and the threat of destruction, the absence of conflict seems like paradise. Jesus' words remind that audience that the cost of discipleship were never concealed. Jesus was brutally honest in warning those who chose to participate in the kingdom building ministry will need to make sacrifices as Jesus did. Quote, the fourth section identifies the courage, impact, and reward of faithful mission. As Jesus was resisted, so are disciples. But disciples can fear not because God rules the future and the present. The mission's exclusive loyalty to Jesus disrupts households. Yet some will be receptive and vindicated in the judgment. This mission discourse underscores key features of the community of disciples. As a mission community commanded by Jesus, it imitates and continues his mission. Disciples do so in poverty, single-mindedness, itinerancy, vulnerability, and interdependence. They engage society, neither fleeing from it nor accepting imperial society as normative. Mission comprises transformative practices of proclamation, healing, and exorcisms. It is not a sporadic or optional activity, but is central to the community's identity and praxis. It requires courage, hope, and conviction about its life and death importance in the face of resistance and persecution. The existence of persecution highlights its contestive and conflictual nature, end quote, Warren Carter. Matthew's account consistently speaks to a community on the inside with encouragement to devote themselves to expanding to the outside. The conflict is inside the house. Safety, purpose, and welcome can be found moving beyond the bounds of comfort and familiarity. At the same time, the account is shared with the community that has witnessed the evolution of that movement and found itself confronting resistance, oppression, and death. What encouragement can really be found for entering into those precarious waters? Jesus tells them to find their life. They must lose it. 
In truth, Jesus entreats them to give up what they would hold most near and dear. But isn't that what the incarnation was for Jesus? I read a book that makes the claim that for Jesus, the humiliation does not start at Calvary and the crucifixion, but at their birth and incarnation. Jesus does not pick up their cross after their conviction. Rather, Jesus lives his entire life on the cross of self-emptying as they live a life as bound by the physical as spiritual, fully human and fully divine. Jesus' connection to source and spirit gets severed for a time as they submit to death in the same way that they admonish the disciples that their commitment to the kingdom must be greater than that of any relationship they value. The word cuts, and it won't be until later that the original heroes will be privy to witness the wounds to which Jesus will be subjected, mind, body, and spirit. Most of us will not confront the same depth of sacrifice when paying the cost of discipleship. Yet we also must realize that the cost companions alongside the joys that we seek. Quote, this chapter is sometimes referred to as the missionary discourse. For first world readers and mainline denominations, this chapter seems a world away with its talk of witness, persecution, poverty, and martyrdom. To the extent that it seems alien, it is a call to re-examine our own version of Christianity. Such a re-examination is in order, I think. I wonder whether we, in fact, have a form of culture Christianity, an ecclesial existence that has become so well adapted to our culture that it is indistinguishable from it. In our situation of ease, have we lost our prophetic edge and with it a sense of the distance between the reign of God and the status quo? Is it possible that the very things that in our context have made it easy to be a Christian have made it harder to follow Jesus? End quote, Anna Case Winters. The tension between being and doing seems to never abate. To be a Christian speaks of identification with a community held with shared characteristics. To follow Jesus describes actions and behaviors that reflect their ministry, purpose, and authority. When one of these descriptors conflicts with the other, then perhaps either our being or our doing has been compromised for our comfort. Comfort is not a fruit of the spirit. While Jesus promised a comforter, they do not offer a life of comfort. In fact, it would seem that claim that to lose one's life is the only way to find it suggests that the pursuit of comfort embraces death and destruction. Life requires a full commitment to the kingdom of God in proclamation and demonstration. Life may only be abundant and full when lived in spirit and truth. As resurrection people, our testimony confesses that when the old life is finished, while those cuts may leave scars, new life is promised. Proclaim life. The United Church of Christ gathers at a body at General Senate with representatives from all settings serving as delegates and visitors. During that gathering, worship provides a central role in forming us as a faith community dedicated to remember our past, to celebrate our present, and to envision our future. As Minister for Worship and Theology, I provide resources to the local church for Sunday worship and sermon preparation. I also serve as Director of General Senate Worship. General Senate at Home, 
brings the local church and the General Senate together. It is my vision and hope that local churches will use these resources found on the Worship Ways page on ucc.org and be drawn closer by the Spirit to the church gathered at General Senate. The communion liturgy that many will utilize on that Sunday will be the same as the liturgy used in the community worship service for General Senate on Sunday afternoon. As many pastors may find securing pulpit supply challenging, I will write and record through video a sermon that may be played in local churches or read by a worship leader. We also invite the local church to pray for the church at General Synod. We are one church gathered in many places. Let us celebrate that connection as God is making all things new. Thank you for joining me. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find the full sermon seats entry, including a suggested congregational response, Quotes for Further Reflection, Voices of African Descent, and the Roadmap for the Entire Season on ucc.org. Sermon Seeds also has a Facebook page where I do a weekly Facebook Live process video in preparation for the reflection and share updates and links for Sermon Seeds, Worship Ways, and General Senate Worship. Follow us there and subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. I pray that this tool provides a seed that will bear fruit in your faith community as you proclaim the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.